Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Who Am I This Time? with me, David Morrissey. Each episode, I'm talking to performers from film, television and theater about one significant role in their career. It might not always be the role they're most famous for, but in each one, I'll be trying to find out about the preparation, the excitement, and the sense of nostalgia that goes with any key role in an actor's lifetime. After training at RADA, Canadian-born Tanya Moody established herself as a stage actor, gaining award nominations for her work on Intimate Apparel and Fences. She also appeared on screen in projects as diverse as A Discovery of Witches, Tin Star, Motherland and Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. I caught up with her earlier this year to talk about life, work and her stunning portrayal of Willetta Mayer in the National Theatre production of August Wilson's Trouble in Mind. So my guest today is Tanya Moody, uh, and we'll be talking about her character Willetta in the play Trouble in Mind by Alice Childress, which was at the National Theatre. And uh, I saw it on Saturday night, and it's fantastic. It's a brilliant, brilliant production with a fantastic performance by yourself in it. But it's the it's the second time you've done it, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's the second uh, production of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's kind of the third lifespan of it in a sense. In, in the, the first production of it um, that started out as a Ustinov in Bath, mm-hmm. um, it got an outing at the Ustinov and then we transferred into London. And that wasn't a given. It wasn't like something that was just going to happen. Oh, you know, we open in Bath and transfer to London. We had to sort of, you know, make it again in a way from, from scratch. And so... It's a very, I mean, this play and Willetta has been in my life for the past six years, nearly. So this all came about because I had um, done another play, Met Apparel, um, which also opened at the Euston Off in Bath. And um, it had a, a really wonderful reception and um, people really liked it. And I... Uh, it, it was the first thing I ever did really that kind of um, not only did it garner me a, a level of kind of um, professional attention, but it, I was aware that it gave me the opportunity to, if I wanted to make something, I knew that people were more, would be more receptive to me knocking on their door, mm-hmm. making phone calls, going, hi, it's me, Tanya Moody. Have you, um, do, you mind, do you want to have a chat about maybe doing something? Do you know what I mean? And to me, my professional life has always been about that. It's always been about collaboration, um, uh, having ideas of things to create, um, um, making art, you know, making art together with other creators. And so, and I've never been very good at just kind of um, sitting and waiting for work. Um, By no means is that uh, like a slight on any other artistic, creative or actor. It's not that oh, that's all we do, sit around and wait for work. I'm sure, you know, we all have this kind of creative engine within us and we're all trying to do something. And sometimes it just feels like that. It feels like we are at the whim of other people's creative fancy and we are waiting. And I'm really, really not good at that. Um, And uh, I was, you know, I was a single mum at the time living in this flat that I could scarcely afford. And having my daughter, um, who at the time was maybe about, I don't know, six-ish or so, five or six, 
gave me an incredible sense of urgency in terms of I need to make work. Mm-hmm. Um, not only for our survival, but I also had this kind of really deep need for her to see her mother thriving in the process of creation and doing what I do, which is, which is a very kind of, it's a very ephemeral thing what we do, David, isn't it? Yes. Do you know what I mean? We don't get up at a certain time of the day necessarily and go and do a nine to five and come home, which, you know, I mean, many people in my life have, have, you know, do that and have done that. And, um, it's much easier to hang your hat on <laughs> in a way. Yeah. I think that's why I wanted to do this podcast is because there's so much of our job that is unexplained or yes. people don't know and it goes on behind the scenes. And I think sometimes if people are thinking of coming into the profession or just starting the profession, mm. you can feel a little bit like the magic circle that there's, that you know, the people who are doing it have this sort of, this way in, they have this sort of connections that, and actually we're, we're all in the same boat really. And it is hard to yeah. explain and, you know, the, but it's 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 a wonderful thing, but it's also quite uh, hard. You know, it's intangible as well, isn't it, and stuff. And uh, so, yeah, talk a little bit more about when you did that, the play, and then you had this play that you wanted to do. So you suddenly had a bit of clout or a bit yeah. of profile. Yeah, do you know what I mean? I suddenly had a bit of, I knew, the thing is about having clout as well in this world where things are like really fleeting is that there is, an, you know, the thing about the iron being hot is very real. Do you know what I mean? And you do have to strike when that happens because very, very quickly, it doesn't really matter who you work with or what award you got or where you, it doesn't matter. Like people start caring. You even stop caring because it doesn't have any real effect on your life anymore. It's in the past. It really, really is. And the whole energy around creation is about this moment and this moment and this moment. It's always about going forward and dreaming forward and very little about the past is a dream now. It happened then. No. So I was aware that, you know, the onus was on me to capitalize off this and not let whatever I'd done in the past just stay in the past and sort of have to reinvent the wheel in terms of what I was doing. So I contacted a playwright that I'd worked with, you know, 18 months before or something, Marcus Gardley, who's based in the States, very successful player, lovely, lovely man. And uh, I said, could you please, do you mind giving me a reading list of things, of plays, where you feel that there are roles that I could play, because now you know me, now I've worked on one of your plays, you know me, you know, you know what I can do, and you have a much broader sense of what's out there than I do, do you know? Um, and so he just, he texted me a reading list of plays, and this play was second or third down the list or something. I'd read a few other ones first. In fact, I even tried to get the rights to another one first, but the playwright, the playwright's agent said, oh, no, no, she's moved on. No, she doesn't want that play done anymore. That's just not her voice anymore, which is fair enough. Mm-hmm. And then I came upon this play. And so this play in the States is very well known in, you know, theatre circles. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and I was told by a certain Black American playwrights, like, oh, this is the one that Black women of a certain age do. This is the one, mm-hmm. you know? This is it. And I was like, really? I've never heard of it. Now, apparently it had been done here in 1992, um, at the tricycle, uh, and I think Nicholas Kent directed it, um, with Carmen Monroe playing Willetta. Now I didn't see that. 1992 it would have been my second year at RADA. And I didn't actually get out to see a lot of theatre. <laughs> well, I did, and I did, and I didn't, I don't remember that play. And I, and I remember going to the tricycle a lot, so I don't remember that. It exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, it didn't, I didn't see it at all. And, so I then took this play. I thought, this is great. Because when I read it, I, I'm turning the pages and being like... It's such a modern play, though, isn't yeah. it? So right here, him. right now. Yeah. Absolutely shocked. And uh, I had to make some choices. I did some sort of mental, cultural maths in my head. And I was like, I know who I want to direct this. At the time, I wanted Paulette Randall's directed. Mm-hmm. But I knew that if I just asked Paulette, who's a friend, um, I mean, I don't know if, uh, if all of your listeners might not know who she is. Imagine you have listeners all across the globe. Yeah. She is Paulette Randall, MBE, you know, major, she like co-directed the uh, London Olympic ceremonies. <laughs> like, she's a big deal. Do you know what I mean? She directs yeah. a lot of telly now. She, she's a very dear friend. She's wonderful. Um, black uh, uh, British woman of um, Afro-Caribbean heritage from London. And uh, she actually gave my first job at a Rada as well when I was like 
19 or whatever. And uh, I knew I wanted her to direct it. However, I also knew that if I just approached her and said, look, I got this great play, do you want to direct me in it? She might've said yes, maybe if she was free, but also then we would have been stuck, both of us with the script, two black women walking around trying to get someone to put it on. Right. And if you know the play, you know, this is a lot, <laughs> you know, the play actually talks about this stuff. Yeah. You know, the director in the, in the last half of the play is talking about, you know, who in the right mind. So we should actually, we should just talk a little bit about the play itself. Exactly. Because it's quite an unusual play, isn't it? It's a play about a play. It's a play set in a rehearsal room. So that in itself is strange and, and, and odd. Yeah. So, but just, just very quickly, just not quickly, but just tell me a little bit about the story of the play. Okay, so uh, 1957, New York, Broadway. Um, a director who is, we get the impression that he is trying to find something to do. His career is a little bit in the doldrums because this is the time as well of McCarthyism and people being outed for un-American activities. And that he's kind of trying to bide his time because there's been a little bit of heat on him. And he's, he's normally a film director. And he decides... But it's, it's not Ilya Kazan at all, is it? No, no. no. Okay. So <laughs> no. Let, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> just, just to make that clear. Right. And um, so he um, gets this play written by this guy who we, who we never see. Because this guy, you get the impression as well that the guy who wrote it, who's in Europe at the moment, is also gotten out of the country a little bit, sort of take the heat off himself. And, and he's, he's a got, white writer as well. Exactly, it? exactly. And he's written this play about... A, a present day in a inverted commas community in the South. And by the South, I mean, I, I'm using the term specifically the South because it's a very generic mm-hmm. representation of the South, you know? And so, you know, we were trying to establish where possibly it could have been, you know, in the writer's mind. Um, but, you know, this, the writer in the, of this play within the play, you know, everything that this, guy has written is a generalization and a gross mis- misrepresentation of every single culture and person within yeah. the play. Yeah. The black people in it, the southern people in it, I mean, the whole thing is offensive, really. Yeah. But um, they're all just excited to be on Broadway, quite frankly. Well, they, need, they need work as well. They, they need the work, mm. absolutely, all of them. Mm. Um, so the stakes are high for them, you know, professionally and financially for all of them. And we open the play on the first day of rehearsal and my character, Willetta, comes in first and uh, meets uh, Henry, the caretaker, at first. And you realise that, that Henry's actually worked with her before. Um, Willetta has a long career in sort of like, um, you know, we sort of call it the Negro circuit, basically, um, at that time. So it would have, or the coloured circuit, I suppose, <laughs> it would have been called at the time. Um, I think another term would have been like the Chitlin circuit. Mm-hmm. where, you know, it's mainly kind of more musical plays and, um, you know, within their community, you know. Um, and she's quite a big star. Yeah. Um, but has never played Broadway before, before and has never done an acting role on stage before. This is her chance to do a serious role, isn't it? Absolutely. And what we get, when you meet the uh, caretaker guy, he loves her. I mean, he oh, really, gosh. and he appreciates her, and and she says, "I, you know," she says, "I don't do that anymore. Yeah. I'm, doing, <laughs> I'm doing this now." Yes, and yes. Uh, and then she meets a young black actor, doesn't she? She does. Who's who comes in next? And he's he's the new ingenue. So if you imagine like a, a very young Sidney Poitier in his first job mm-hmm. on Broadway, um, so he's you know he's handsome and he's talented and he's studied, you know. Mm-hmm. And this is a time when you know, so black people still in the states at this time, we don't have the vote legally. And as well, we're not, there's no, um, integration is only just starting to happen. So, you know, the children going to school in Little Rock, Little Rock has just happened, you know, um, they're trying to integrate the schools, the children being spat on, rocks thrown at them. Um, and so John, this young actor, whatever studying he's done, wouldn't have been an integrated, like he didn't go to Juilliard or Yale or anything, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He would have gone to a school specifically for, again, I'm going to use the term, the coloured actors at the time. Um, but he is, you know, the training is great, <laughs> just like anywhere else. And he's really kind of fired up and he, he, he gleans way more depth 
in this part and in the play than anyone else because that's what you do when you're young. Yeah, yeah. Oh. and you feel that he's the future as well, though. You feel yeah. that he's he's going to forge the future through what he learns during our play. You feel that he is going to take that on with him because he is brilliantly talented as well, isn't he? Absolutely. And Willetta kind of reigned in his parade, you know, in the first 10 minutes. She, she schools him, doesn't she? She really yeah. schools him. You know, don't get too big for your boots. Do you know what? Just a little digression here, David. Mm-hmm. My first ever job out of RADA, theatre piece, August Wilson piece, and I had like, you know, I had like the young ingenue part, you know, but August Wilson plays, you know, all the parts are good. It's not so fun. You know, it's always yeah. just standing there looking cute. You know what I mean? They're all good and you can make whatever you want with them. Directed by Paul Epps, this wonderful woman I talked about. And the very first night, uh, press night, and it was the first press night I'd ever done as well. And we did the play, um, and the, the people playing the leads, you know, amazing actors. You know, all these British actors, black British actors that I worked with at the start of my career, brilliant. Like, just talk about, so I went straight from RADA into going into like a professional schooling kind of environment. Do you know what I mean? So you're learning every second, watching everyone. Did the first night, had a great time, came off stage, all full of, you know, you know what it's like, your first ever play, you like yeah. <laughs> and I It's walked, a long time ago, but I do remember it. Yeah, so. you remember it. <laughs> and I walked straight up to this older black British actress who I'd known about, um, because, you know, there's a sense of legacy, you know, there's people who have gone before us, mm-hmm. and, you know, and so I was always full of awe of these people, and, you know, I really looked up to them, and I walked up to her, say, hi, I'm Tanya, it's really nice to meet you. And she went, hmm, yeah, well done tonight. And I was like, thank you. And she said, just don't get too big for your boots. And I remember being like, <laughs> my face just totally frozen. It was like, it was like an ice pick through my heart. You know, I, I, I didn't even know if I understood. It also gave from the, because that's the production I saw. Yes. What it does is it gives it a real confidence in each performance that that everybody in the performance, black actors and white actors, they feel very, you know, they are very uh, secure. You feel this security. And, you know, sometimes in the audience, you want to feel a bit insecure. You know, you want to feel a bit scared. But in a play like this, what, and it's also really, really important to say about this play is it's really funny. It's a yeah. funny night out. You go out and it makes you laugh and it, yeah. and, and it has something else in it as well. You know, it's really telling you about something. But it has this, that production had a real surety to it. I saw it on the last night, so obviously it'd be embedded in a bit, but it was, it was like watching this dance between you all. And that there's there's a surety in that that I, I'm sure comes from from being with Nancy in their rehearsal room. So the, 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 the positive thing about the play in that way is so sort of touching again on, you know, me saying, making this pronouncement like, I don't think a white guy should direct this. Yeah, yeah. Again, you know, speaking to your listeners who are still not happy with me saying that. Um, the good thing about it is, which is for their argument, is that the play is so good and it's so well written that, you know, to be frank, if a monkey directed it, it would still be a good play. Do you know what I mean? The writing can, is absolutely it's, superb. It's great. Do you know what I mean? You can hire talk, someone. Let's just would, talk about, because you're rehearsing a play that is about a rehearsal. Yes. Does that add something that's different for you? I mean, there's, because you have the director, you had Manners, who's the director. He's giving the, I mean, it's very, I kept thinking, what's this play like to rehearse? Like, we never even discussed that as a, as a kind of metaphysical layer. We never right. even talked, we just kind of did it. It was like ducks jumping into a pond. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We just kind of quack, 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 got on with it. And we never even were like, guys, we're like in rehearsal doing rehearsal, isn't that weird? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It was like, yeah. such a given because, and I guess that's, that's, the, that's the layer of, you know, because actors, in the same way that a black woman understands the codes of this writing, uh-huh. actors understand the codes of the rehearsal room. The actors from the very, from the get-go, from the read-through, could add depth to it. And that line that you're talking about, that sort of underlining code or whatever, mm-hmm. you're from Canada and it's an American play, but 
Do you feel that there's anything within the, a UK cast, what they, on a UK audience, do you feel that this play or the production you were in, do you think it would be received differently with an American audience or if American actors were doing it? Is, does it extend to that point? <laughs> very, very different. And, which is fine. Um, because, you know, this is my, this is my home now. It has been for the past 32 years or so. And I, I still don't fully speak English in a way. Do you know what I mean? It's like I came from Canada and I had to learn English. I had to learn, you know, everything that I missed in terms of all the cultural references and all that stuff and how people think here. And I'm still learning. I'm still learning. And, and you're right, you know, being Canadian is very difficult, different to being American as well. So there's still things that I, had to find out, like, oh, that's what it means. And that that was something I wanted to talk to you about in a rehearsal room on a play like this, or any play, you know, is that sense of lines having currency, having weight, uh, meaning certain things to a group of people or one person. Does not, do you, with someone like Nancy, are you breaking it down line for line? Are you then you getting the play on the feet, then sitting down and discovering it? Or do you sit down for a week or two and just discuss the play and then get it on its feet? How does she work? Do you like to work, do you like to work from the script or do you like to get it up there and discover it as in action? That's such a good question, David, because, especially because I worked on this play in two distinctly different ways with these two directors. So with um, the first director, his method, and I've worked with him before, so this is a method that he uses, was, you know, you do the read-through together um, and you might do it again together. And then almost immediately you start working on your feet, like with your scene partner. So, so, he'll, so they'll break down rehearsal so that it's just you and whoever your scene partner is in the room. Mm-hmm. And you start by sitting on two chairs facing one another and you're just saying it to one another. Mm-hmm. And then he'll go, okay, great, do that again. Okay, great, do that again. And then you say, okay, well, let's try putting on our feet now and then just see where... And I really love that way of working. Okay. Um, so, so me saying, for example, just going back just to qualify, and I say I don't think the play should be directed by a white male. Um, that's no criticism of his technique or his methods. I love that method. Love it. Do you know, I love the way he works. And I always, I always had done in other plays that he, that I worked on with him as well. Um, because, and it's just the way I work as a kind of this is going to sound like a really wanky term, but a sort of psychophysical actor. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that later. Yeah, it's sort of, you know, I, I respond very much to impulses, um, you know, kind of throwing a ball back and forth with my scene partner, yeah. listening to, oh, they said it like that. Okay, well, then that's maybe something like that. And so it's a really gentle introduction and it, it can allow you to get a play on its feet faster than you would do if you had a longer rehearsal process. Do you yes. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, and that that particular theatre has a very short rehearsal process. Yeah, so I really, I really like that, his method of working for those shorter rehearsal periods because you start to embody it quite, I don't want to use the word quickly, but it just, because your body has a memory, a muscle memory, and so it helps you to make a, a connection in a, in a tempo that is more, is, you know, a bit quicker so that you feel more confident confident about getting on its feet sooner. But I don't want to be crass about that. Does that mm. mean that you end up getting a more generalised feeling around seeing? It, it, it can do. It can do. And I. it just so happens that from my personal process as a creative, I take it upon myself to fill in the gaps with research mm-hmm. and and you know doing character work, physical work, psychophysical work background research, da, 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 I do that myself so that even though the director's process might be one that's quite quick, I am underpinning it with my own research so that I can always bring offerings to the table. I can always try something and then check in with the director and go, is that working? No, it's not going to work. Is that working? That's working. Do, you know what I mean? I can always find a way yeah. through. But everyone works differently. 
you know. And Nancy, uh, how does Nancy approach the text? So, so Nancy, okay, so this is my first time working with Nancy. And also, you know, it's her first time at the National. I've been at the National several times, but, you know, so I'm aware that the National has a much longer rehearsal process. We had like six weeks, yeah. you know, because um, it's just one of those theatres that can afford to do that. And it feels like a luxury. It feels like a luxury. I mean, six weeks is a good period of time where by the time you get on stage, you don't feel like you're going stale. Whereas, you know, I've worked at the Royal Shakespeare Company where we had like a three-month rehearsal process. Yeah. And by the time you get on stage, you're, gag- you're gagging from audience. <laughs> I, like- I had that at the National. I had a 16-week rehearsal and I thought, and we left it in the, in the rehearsal a great, but a great production at eight weeks at sixteen weeks. We were all so bored with it, and, yeah. the, and, and we hadn't even done it in front of an audience. Yeah. It's so it's so hard. It's just so hard, and mm. and you can feel that a good director. Mm, I don't want to say that. I don't want to say like because that's implying that maybe the director you had wasn't the director. I'm okay. taking that back. Okay. But what I'm saying is, sometimes a director can kind of help the energy be balanced out. So that by the time you, you get on stage, you're not necessarily like, oh, whatever anymore. It, but at the end of the day, that takes a Herculean effort. Because at the end of the day, time is time. If you're in a rehearsal room for three months or whatever, it's really hard to find, to find meaning again. So you can find ways to balance that out with games or whatever, site visits, blah, 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 so that by the end, you're still feeling like that sense. There's a little bit of jeopardy in terms of, are we ready? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You don't want the jeopardy to be gone. You don't want to be like, yeah, I was ready to do stuff. We'll be back with more chat after this. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, you're listening to Who Am I This Time? With me, David Morrissey. Now, back to this week's episode. I can none but watching you, and I, as I say, I watched the, the, the last night and I, I knew that you'd done the play before. Mm. You know, and this is true of all of the actors I saw, is um, you had such joy doing it. It was like, it was so new minted. And I know that's the job of an actor to present mm. that. But, you know, some plays give you energy, don't they? They mm-hmm. give you energy. You're, new, you're finding something new in them every night, that you're finding a different line every night. You're finding a different relationship with another actor every night. And it seems yeah. to me that this play could endlessly have that because it's so rich and complex that each, each performer can mine their character and their situation endlessly, it seemed to me. And also they're brilliantly written parts. I mean, they're, they're, they're not, they're, there isn't, there's no like token uh, speech in there or so. They're, they're not caricatures in any way. They're yeah. all totally believable. And they're all, you know, and the shocking element, there's a sh- very shocking thing that happens at the end, which you know that, you know, that's sort of going to come. But it's a hundred percent believable and a hundred percent characterful, and and really, she even Alice Childress gives the man who has this sort of racist rant at the end. She gives him some sort of, 
explanation for where that comes from, you know. It's, and, and, and so it's really well-rounded, brilliantly written, I think, in that way. But I can see that delicacy around the subject. Like, yeah. like you know, like Waleta, that how does Tanya deal with a, a director, whether in theatre or film or TV, where you feel you're being either manipulated or pushed into something that you yourself are uncomfortable about? In the moment, I tend to... I tend to be very reserved about things. I, I'm, I'm the queen of the, the pensée d'escalier, which is like, the, you know, the French term of like, you know, when you think of something, on the, oh, you just left something, you're going up the stairs. Oh, shit, I should have said. I try not to fall prey to outrage, mm-hmm. you know, just kind of in a, some sort of explosive, like, knee-jerk thing. I is, that sort a, of, is that as simple as you don't want to put negative energy out there? It's just that I want to create value. I want, well, whatever's going to happen with this, with this, it can't just benefit me. It has to go, it has to go on into the future. This something has to change fundamentally because mm-hmm. this is shit, basically. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So, for example, now this is well known, so I don't mind talking about this. Uh, some time ago there, oh, this isn't 20, I want to say 2015, 2014, 2015, there was a production that was happening at a theatre where this very powerful director, British director, was doing a production of Shakespeare's Wars of the Roses. And it had, it had come under fire because the entire, it was, a, it, was a, it was a monoculture, not just the cast, but behind the scenes as well. Yeah. And it come under fire because, it, it, you know, at the end of the day, it's his production, he can do what he wants. People, I use that term generally, because it wasn't me initially, I hadn't known this was happening, and then it was sort of in the press. And they were saying that, well, it's 2015 or whatever, and it's like, you don't have to have a monoculture anymore. Why have you chosen to do that? And his response was, well, I believe in historical verisimilitude. This was the, his exact expression, historical verisimilitude. That's when I kicked off. That's when I took off my shoe and I put my foot in my mouth, the whole thing. Because I didn't mean to comment on that. I was being interviewed about something else for uh, some newspaper or something about something to do with diversity and theater, whatever. And I I was naive enough to speak off the record because we all know there's nothing is off the record. Nothing. (laughs) You know what I mean? If you say it to a reporter, that's it. You're fucked. So, and I mentioned, because I I was grumbling about it at home alone, going, historical verisimilitude is a lie. It is a lie. It's like when whatever picks up the play and, 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 and says, this is the lie. 100%. Yeah. Because you are, you are telling us that there were no black people in this particular situation on the British Isles during that period. That is a lie. And it's been proven. And if you really want to go full historical verisimilitude, that was also a time when Europe was rife with violent anti-Semitism. So, also, also, you'd never be able to do Richard III, for God's sake, because it's a, it's a complete yeah. tissue of lies. You know what I mean? I was like, don't use that as an explanation. It's okay to say, well, this is how I wanted to cast it. Mm-hmm. That's how, how the cookie crumbled. Then we go, oh, whatever. And you'd move on. But it's the fact that he said historical verisimilitude, mm-hmm. I got really Jamaican at that. <laughs> I was like, I just lost, I lost it. Yeah. And then, of course, that went. And then the next morning I woke up. This is when I used to be on Twitter. I'm not on Twitter anymore. And, and my phone was blowing up, blowing up. And I was like, oh, what happened? And I was like, oh, my God, I've just ended my career. Like, am I stupid? You know? And the best advice I got, I contacted a colleague who was, who was much better at being outspoken and not caring. And I said to him, what should I do? And he said, well, do you believe what you said? which is basically like you're whitewashing history. So do you believe? I was like, yeah. And he's like, well, oh, what's the problem? Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. Is it that simple? Okay. So I just kind of like got really quiet. And, and, and what I did then, David, was in the intervening period, I have set up my own production company with a colleague yeah. where we mine British history for stories of note about the Black British historical presence. This is Sarah Rutherford, yeah? Yes. Yeah. And right now we have three projects, television projects, um, that have been optioned. Brilliant. So there are plates spinning on those and other things that are sort of coming through. So that is what I mean by 
when things happen and there's and there's that discomfort and I feel like that's wrong, I now have an outlet mm-hmm. where I can go, I'm gonna correct this, but not just for me. Where where was that where was it born for you? When did you first sort of get an inkling that this might be because you went, I think you went to a convent school and they did plays and stuff like that. So was that where you suddenly thought, oh, I can do this? By the time I was going to graduate high school, I didn't do terribly well on academic subjects. Um, so I negotiated with them and I said, in order to graduate, may I please spend the morning doing the academic subjects that I'm interested in, i.e. like English, French, drama. And then in the afternoon, I'll take a bus. And there was something, I think it was called, I think it was called a work, working credit or something you could get at the time in Ontario. Like mm-hmm. Distant memory. Where it was basically a vocational credit you could get. Yeah. But because I wasn't at a vocational high school, there was a vocational high school in my neighbourhood, but they did more tech stuff. You know what I mean? They're probably all billionaires now. All the kids who went to that school. <laughs> you know, at the time they were all kind of like you know, tinkering and stuff. And I was like, but anyway. This but your was credit was in the theatre. Mine was in the theatre. And I asked them, may I please spend half my day working at this new work theatre? And they were like, sure, whatever. No one's ever asked us to do that before. I don't see why not. Yeah. So they would, you know, I'd go and sign in in the morning, do the classes I like, get on the bus, go down to the theatre. <laughs> And then I would literally do, so I had a goal already. I was like, I think I was around 16 by that point. And I would, my goal was that to make them trust me so much that they would allow me to sit in on a rehearsal. Right. Because the rehearsal room behind the closed door to me was like where magic happened. Magic. And the actors were like wizards and witches and fairies. And oh my God, you know. So I did everything. I, you know, I sold confectionery. I cleaned the loos. I, I painted sets. I swept the floors. I did everything, photocopying everything. Mm-hmm. So that one day I could ask the artistic director, I was like, can I, can I sit in a rehearsal? And he was like, sure, come on in. And I got in there and I sat at the table and they all had their scripts, they were rehearsing a new play. And I realized how boring it is. It was <laughs> so boring. They read through the play and then they talked about it and then they read and they talked about it some more and none of the actors had any answers. They'd ask this big actor, so what do you think this means? And I go, I don't know. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> not only is it boring, but y'all are like yeah. just really simple. Where's the insights? You know what I mean? And then yeah. and that made me go, that means I can do this because I'm not very smart. <laughs> <laughs> And like, all you really have to do is like read the play. And then, you know, so I was like, that to me opened the door of possibilities. So I was like, I have to do this now because they're not magic and they're not geniuses and they're not doing something superhuman that only lesser mortals of me, like me, could never dream of doing. They're just normal fucking people. But it's true that even before that, your father had an appreciation of Shakespeare, didn't he? He loved Shakespeare. So you were listening to it. And the, the, isn't there a story that the te- a teacher in your school just put on an LP of Shakespeare sonnets and walked out and have a fag and you, and you just, you were the person who sort of understood it and laughed at it and sort of, so yeah. you, you, you had, it was given to you via your dad, wasn't it as well? Well, the Shakespearean bit. Yeah. I mean, my dad came from a family of educators. So his mother was a headmistress and his father was a headmaster. And they, at that time, in the, I want to say, 15s in Jamaica, they would learn things by rote. So they would learn Shakespeare yeah. speeches by rote, poems by rote, and you'd go out and, and perform them in front of the class. And that's one of the things that they did. So, you know, to his dying day, I mean, I remember going to visit my dad. He's no longer with us. And I went to visit him in his nursing home. And he did a speech from, I have to ask my brother, I think it might have been Richard III, just, you know, just for us. And he was quite, you know, he had dementia. So he wasn't, you know, he's quite far gone, but he just stopped, you know, he was like, oh. So, um, yeah. And he gave me, you know, he as a gift, he'd always give me like the complete works and stuff. And, you know, write and, you know, make sure you... So at first I didn't really appreciate it. I was like, why does he want to read this kind of like old English guy and stuff? Like, why is this relevant? But also when you were growing up and you were thinking about acting, did you have role models? Unfortunately not. Just my brother. Right. Really. I mean, because he's... So that's a big thing, isn't it, that you're not really seeing you in the profession you want to go into. Yeah, I mean, my, my whole attitude when I went to Rotter and I auditioned and then going out and being an actor was more to do with 
And I've had to correct this attitude over the years because I realised this is going to kill me. But I, I assumed that life as an actor was, that was, was one that was quite impoverished. I assumed that I'd always be doing theatre and I wouldn't be earning a lot of money and that I would always be in debt. But because I'm an artist, it's going to be worth it. It's some weird, there's like a, a narrative that I think can be kind of fed. I think that's a good, yeah, but there's, there's something about the fact that if you're coming into this profession to earn a lot of money, you, mm. need to, you need to get real about that as well. Yeah. There's a, middle, there's a middle ground, but it's, uh, you know. There's a middle ground. And I, for some reason, had this narrative came in the back door of like, I'm, I'm never going to have any money. I'm going to be rejected a lot. So I have to be resilient, emotionally resilient. And it's okay to not have a lot of money because I'll still be able to eat and I can always go home to my mom's and do my laundry. Like, I, you know what I mean? I have this kind of like, it's going to be cool. It's going to be cool. And I'll always have really good friends and we'll all just really like hanging out together. I have no idea how that got in, but it did. Right. And then while I was at RADA, we would have, you know, this sort of professional development days people come in and talk about. I remember we had this one chat by this guy who came in and he sat there and he was like, it's going to be really hard and, you know, you're never going to earn any money. And so he was kind of reflecting back this, what I believe. And I remember thinking, like rejecting it in that moment, being a terrible thing to tell us. That's awful. Yeah. How dare you come in here and just... Tell us that we're all wasting our time. Piss on our dreams. I remember being apoplectic. And that, it was that talk that made me go back to Rada and say, invite me in. I'm going to tell them the truth. Invite me in. You know, our job is to deal with complex emotions. Mm-hmm. I mean, talking to young people about that, and certainly, you know, there, there are certain plays which deal with lots of old-fashioned sort of language, old-fashioned ideas, stereotypes and stuff like that, is how do you deal with younger actors who are struggling? Because, you know, if you're 17, 18, there's a lot going on in your own life. How do you help someone who might be in an emotional place themselves to explore the emotions of a character which might be a bit unsafe sometimes. I mean, when I came to Rada from Liverpool, I was so locked up. I was so, I didn't want to appear to be foolish or be embarrassed in any way. I, you know, I had my sort of role models and they were all hard men actors, uh, hard drinking, hard, you know, that type of thing. And I didn't want, you know, somebody said to me, I was going to have to wear a pair of tights in the dance room. And I said, there's no fucking way I'm doing that. You know, there was all, I was so locked up. And it took me a while. We had a wonderful uh, movement teacher called Ben Benison. And oh, I love, I have Ben. Yeah, ben so he was he was taught he taught me how to have fun and how to lighten up and how to let that sort of great expression of get out of the way of yourself. Yeah, and he taught me. But God, it sounds very easy to say. It really, and even what I remember one lesson doing it and really letting go and sort of. And afterwards in the pub, people were laughing about it. And I got really angry. I had to go home because I was so, because I thought they were taking the piss out of me or sort of belittling me or throwing it and shaming me in some way. And it took me a long time to process all that, that it was, you know, this mad machismo that I had about myself. Wow. I had to let that go and, and discover through fun and, and, and you know, um, being freer in all that. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, it's very much a, what was I? I was 19, 20 at that time. Now, there's two other things I just want to talk to you briefly. One is that the one is about nerves, how you combat nerves or feel nerves or allow nerves in. How do you have a routine around that? Um, in, a, in a way. So, one thing I will say is that at this present moment on my journey, I do not suffer from nerves. Mm-hmm. And I say at this present moment because I don't know what's going to happen in the future. Because I think these things can surface sometimes. I think there are many great actors who have been fine, who've been fine for years, and then suddenly they go through this period where it's like, I'm just struggling with this thing, anxiety, and it's affected my work. So I don't take it for granted at any time that I just I don't get nervous. That's just me. I don't take it for granted. Um, so what I do in order to not take it for granted is that I, I have certain things in place that I do. Um, and I think for me, it's been about so far what has worked is about establishing routine. So, and I call it routine as opposed to superstition, mm-hmm. because, you know, with superstition, there are some actors that use superstition to their advantage because it helps them feel safe. 
So it's like, when I go in, I always have to touch my jaw three times before I go on stage. I have to do a sneeze or I have to, do you know what I mean? Because That can go bad, can't it? Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it can be calming, but yeah. if things then don't work out. There's a flip side to that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. I always pack myself because I think as human beings, we fall prey to superstition as well. It's really easy to kind of go, to not be flex, because flex, superstition doesn't have any flexibility around it. That's the difference between routine <laughs> and yeah. superstition. Yeah. Um, so for example, once I came into warm up my yoga mat and um, Cyril, who plays Sheldon, had put his mat where mine normally is. And I was like, you can't do that. <laughs> he was like, oh, do, do fuck off. We've known each other for 30 years, basically. He was like, oh, oh. Face, that's my space. And then he really took the piss out of me, you know. And, um, and I was like, Kanye, allow yourself to be teased, because this is important, that you don't fall prey to superstition. Because the fact that your yoga mat isn't there is going to have no impact at all to your, on your performance. Relax. So, um, but routine is important. So I would always make sure, you know, and that is really to, as much to do with warming up. And it depends on the, also depends on the play you're doing. So there's a lot of flexibility around it. So this particular play, because it's very taxing, I always have to leave at a certain time from the house, get in at a certain time, have a certain amount of downtime before I went and warmed up, do a certain type of warm up to warm up certain aspects of my body, mm-hmm. and then do costume and all that and makeup in the same order. Mm-hmm. And all that, that wasn't to do with superstition. It was about how things were timed. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Because then it gave me, then I knew that I was starting on two feet on the ground. Well, that's like an athlete. I think, you know, it's the same process. I think. Exactly. But you carry on that process after the production, don't you? There's, there's, when you take the character off, so to speak, you, you have a routine around that, don't you? I do. And I had, to, I had to learn that because over the years, I found that I was taking the character home with me. So I was, I was getting, t- you know, tensions in my body, you know, having to see a chiropractor all the time or whatever, or being exhausted, not being able to carry on with my normal relationships. Because there was a residue, you know, because we carry, you know, a, ca- a character is a life and you are taking aspects of that person's life and you're embodying it fully emotionally and physically. Hmm. Um, and so what I do, I realise I have to establish a routine when I'm finished, which for me helps me to leave it behind. There's no, I mean, there's no explanation. But is that to do with sort of how you take your makeup off, how you hang your costume? What's that? It's around? more the fact that I just, I, yeah, I kind of, um, I make sure everything is hung up again, basically, and clean. I put everything, I go, it's, I call it first positions, like in, in ballet. Right. Go back to first positions. Make sure, you know, the brushes are washed, everything is lined up on the table, the wig is back on the stand, um, everything is tidied away, lights are, you know what I mean? But I yeah. make sure it's all done. I don't just, leave you know what I mean everything has to be done as well in that order um and again not superstition it's just like yes acknowledging that it's finished putting a point on it I think that's a really good thing I mean I do I do a version of that it's harder obviously on in television uh or film because you're sort of all over the place really but I think in the theater that thing of getting it having my time before we start and then sort of, yes. you know, and again, I, I'm not superstitious, but um, it is, it's because obviously something can get interrupted. Uh, yes. But, but, I, but I, so I don't rely on it, but it's how I like to prepare. I think. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, in television, as you say, you know, you, at the, at the front end, it's very difficult to control what you're doing because it really depends on the production and where you are. And da, 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 it's very difficult. So you have to be extremely flexible. But at the tail end, what I do is I just make sure I've hung up my costume yeah. and tidied the, the trailer, mm-hmm. packed my bag, and walk out the door, say goodbye yeah. to people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so it's like great. there's an end to it. And the other, th- the other two things is reviews. Do you read reviews? Do you listen to them? Are they, <laughs> so are funny. They... I would be such a liar if I said I didn't. <laughs> but how do they affect you? Um, okay, so I... Um, I think it was, I want to say Maya Angelou who said the expression, if you pick it up, you've got to put it down. Mm-hmm. And what she meant by that is if people are saying nice things about you and you lap it up, that means when they say bad things about you, you have to believe it in the same way because one doesn't have any more value than the other. 
Yeah. So, she, you know, be careful of what you buy into energetically is what she's saying. Do you know what I mean? But have you, you learned to... that? Have you, le- have you sort of learned how to do that? I, in, in, a, in a way, I've, it's made me accept. Yeah, I tell you what, it's made me more accepting of when people are like, it was shit, she's shit. It's made me be like, hey, that's their opinion. I mean, I remember when someone, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I'm not on Twitter anymore, because people, you can, you get tagged in on Twitter. The thing is, do you know what I mean? So you might not want to know, but people bring you their opinion. Like, oh, yeah. to the door, <laughs> do you know what I mean? And I, I came off it. Was like, I, I was like, you know, I don't, I don't need people to find me that easily and give me their opinion. But I remember once when I was on Twitter, someone had tweeted some, something insulting about me and it was really funny. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think that's what is giving me a, a sort of levity about it because I was like, actually, that's hilarious. <laughs> and, and I wanted to tweet back, haha, but I thought, oh no, they're going to take that like I'm being sarcastic and I'm hurt, but I actually think it's really funny. So I thought, so you don't, you, I can't, you can't respond at all. Do you know what I mean? Even if you're kind of like, <laughs> like that. But then also, it's made me kind of go, when people are saying all the nice things, it's reminded me, you know, sort of going back to the beginning of our conversation in terms of the iron being hot, like that actually that opinion and that feeling is gone now. Yeah. It's gone. So what does it mean for me, for my life, for my daughter? Can I feed myself? But the, <laughs> but the feeling you had when that was happening, that's still inside you. You can still recreate that feeling yourself, can't you? I mean, you know, you can feel good about yourself in your profession and what you do when the iron isn't hot. You can still, you know, you still have that capacity, don't you? Yeah, I do that by, um, very specifically as well, it's very important to me that I changed my, uh, how I worded my vision for what I was doing, that I stopped seeing myself as an actor. Uh And that I decided to see myself as an artist. 100%. Because when I saw myself as an actor, when I wasn't acting, I suffered and I felt useless. Mm-hmm. And I felt and like that, I had no purpose. And that's your job. It's not who you are. Yeah. You know, Do you see what I mean? Yeah. 100%. But that's the one thing I felt that Rada left me with. Rada left me with a training to be an actor. It didn't teach me how to be an artist. Mm-hmm. And that's another re- reason why I go back and talk to the students. I go, everyone, stop. Stop what you're doing. <laughs> Listen to me. Do you know what I mean? You're not just actors. Like, get that out of your head, you know? Because it was crushing me. When I wasn't working, I was like, I'm, I'm useless. Yeah. And I had to change my attitude. Go, no, I'm an artist. And because of that, then I knew I always had this potential to create, which then opened up so many doors. And then a few years later, well, about at least a decade or more later, then I realized that I also needed to stop only aiming for the next job because that as well yeah that's disastrous wasn't, wasn't enough yeah. it was not enough and i realized i had to change my vision that i also would- make that that drives me mad. i mean i have the only reason i respond like that because I, you know i used to have that a lot and what mm-hmm. was terrible about that was it meant that i was never where i was i wasn't being present in my life because i was yes. constantly thinking about oh next job will be this or yes you know, no or, or i'd be thinking about the last job and i would not be right where i was supposed to be which was here yeah. now yeah exactly going from vine to vine right but yeah. like, that's the next thing you know and I realized, no, I have, my vision has to be to manifest my fullest creative potential. Yeah. And that is the only thing now that goes to my head, my fullest creative potential. Because then that's how I managed to do a master's degree in actor training. Yeah. That's how I managed to get involved in the, you know, the Women's Equality Party. That's how I managed to join the council at RADA, mm-hmm. to start a production company. Because I was like, I have all this potential. Let's do it. And it doesn't have to look a certain way. And it doesn't have to make me a billion pounds. Like, the fuck needs a billion pounds i don't need a billion pounds do you know what i mean just yeah. that's great i mean i think that's, that's really such a great thing to say and remind people i have to remind myself every day but it's all right yeah and the last the last thing which is ties into all this but i think it's important for actors coming into the professional whatever how how are you at watching yourself how objective can you be in the theater it's a different thing because you're inside it but when you're on screen, how, how, how do you watch yourself? How does that feel for you? Um, I tend not to. Um, and that's mainly because, I mean, back in the day, I used to not to because I still wasn't, I wasn't comfortable with doing screen work. 
Mm-hmm. And I was very lost in screen work. And I always suffered when I did screen work. And theatre was my, I was, I was happy, like a duck in water in the theatre. But in, when I was filming, I was miserable. And I turned that around by realising that the reason why I was unhappy is because I was used to my creative process being at the centre of everything. In the theatre, the, the actor's creative process is at the centre and everything else is concentric circles outwards. In filming, the actor is like a tertiary consideration. If, if at best, it's a technical medium. So I would go into filming and I'd, be, I'd feel lost. I'd be like, well, why do I fit in? I can't. <laughs> and I feel lost. And, and unloved. And then I realized, I don't know, I just got a certain level of maturity. And I thought, actually, it's not all about me. <laughs> like, who cares? <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and I started really appreciating the, the technical crew, like the crew and what they were doing and getting really interested and, and you know what I mean? And making friends. And, oh, I, so I, I just saw it from another way and did my that work. Is, is that as simple as saying the, the finished product when it's up there on the screen is the least interesting bit of it for you? Yeah. Yeah, in a, in a way, yeah, you know, and then, and so, and because I used to think that the acting bit was so important, I was way more critical of myself. I was like, oh, I mean, as a, young, as a young actor, I watched myself a lot. I really did. And I watched it more than once because when I first watched it, I thought, oh my God, look at my ears or something, you know, uh, I wish I hadn't worn that t-shirt or something. But then yeah. the more I watched something, the, the more I started to see it the way that an audience would see it. Yes. And I really did learn about how to be in front of a camera, how to, you know, the, because sometimes the things I thought I was doing were not coming across. Obviously I get annoyed when they might've cut something away or cut a scene out, but it was important for me to watch that. Now I trust it more. And I, and I watch it less. Yes. And I trust my colleagues and the director more. And I, and I, I always, you know, many years ago, I developed the habit of always having open dialogue with my directors, both in theatre and filming. Yeah. So that if they're not happy, they have an opportunity to tell me. Yeah. <laughs> because I, I had a terrible experience with the director who did not tell me that they weren't happy and proceeded to try to destroy me psychologically. Yeah. That's just tried to ruin me. And I was so confused. I was like, why didn't they say? And then I realized, actually, Tanya, I'm going to make sure, make sure that's never someone else's responsibility again. You check in. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> and you can, you can only learn that lesson through that sort of pain. Really. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So now I just, I trust and, um, you know, and trust feedback from your wonderful audience. The audiences, now particularly audiences have much more agency, right? Because they can reach you. Yeah. So I am on Instagram because I find it a little bit more innocuous as a, as a platform. You know, there's lots, if you look at my Instagram, lots of pictures of like baking and dogs. Like it's not, <laughs> it's not a big kind of like thing, you know, whereas Twitter is really like a yeah, really no, it's a, horrible, yeah, yeah. angry, dark place. You know, Instagram is like puppies. So I, I like that, you know, it's very relaxed. Yeah. Um, but what I do get is immediate interface with fandoms and, and the audience. And they're very, they can say, I've had people send, say things that maybe aren't so nice, but again, like, you know, the Maya Angelou thing, you know, yeah, I can delete it if I don't want to see it. Yeah. And it's their opinion and it's, it's valid. You know, they don't have to like everything. I don't like everything. And that's no. one of the reasons why I don't watch everything. Cause a lot of things I do, I'm not into the genre. So I just don't watch it. It's not my thing. But I do think it's that thing of what you do on the day is where you are. That's the thing. You, you know, that's where you're enjoying it. That's where your creator's thing. And then you give it to someone else. And if you're giving it to someone else, they can do what they want with it. And it's sort yeah. of, that can be frustrating. It can be upsetting. Sometimes it can be brilliant, but you have to, you have to hand over. And, and, and that, that's really, I've always felt with a director in the theatre, that must be the same for them when we're getting up to press night. They're, they're letting you go. They, they now go on to another job or something, whereas we get to do it every night, which is great. But, you know, it's sort of, that's their handing over process. That's so interesting, yeah. Tanya, it's been lovely to speak, speaking to you. Um, I've loved it. I've so... Um, I love your process, by the way. I know that sounds like such a Yankee thing, young thing to say, but I do. I love the way you work, and I love uh, I love the, your commitment to RADA, and, and, and the production was just unbelievable and I, if it ever does come back I don't know whether it's got any other plans but I thought it was a wonderful wonderful play and a fantastic production so thanks for joining us today I promise you that it will never come back because it will kill me <laughs> <laughs> alright well listen it was great to talk to you <laughs> thank you so much David it's been really fun 
Who Am I This Time is a Just Voices and Dulali production. Produced by Simon Lennigan. Music by Greg Hatlow. Edited and mixed by Russ Keffert at Audio Egg. And presented by me, David Morrissey. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.